0: Good morning, my brothers and sisters. And uh, I don't know—is there—is—is is, is there any Irish in Thorpe at all? It's a Danish name, okay. But like Gordon told us this morning, everybody's Irish on St. Patrick's Day, at least a little bit. So Sullivan's definitely Irish. You know, more than uh, le- less than 150 years ago, my family was O'Sullivan, and they dropped the O when they came here to America. So. Well, four years ago this weekend, Barb and I began a significant chapter in our lives. Most of you know about this. We started the process of moving from our home of 20 years to another home, getting that home ready for her parents to live in, with their walkers and their wheelchairs and their debilitating diseases. Parkinson's disease for her dad and Alzheimer's was her mom's affliction. And then we moved them from their 35-year home in Rogers, Arkansas, And move them in with us. We did a major move twice in four months. And anybody who does a major move ever knows what a chore that is. But we did it twice in just four months. And we began what we came to call the SAL. That's Sullivan Assisted Living. Our motto was, all's well at the SAL. You see we have the trademark on that too. And we really did run essentially what was an assisted living home. Barb's dad, Herb, never wanted to move to assisted living, but he did. He he and Barb's mom moved in with us. In every meaningful way, they were in assisted living. Barb and I and the paid caregivers and some of you put the assisted in assisted living during the years that they lived with us. So the last four years, we spent a lot of time with old people. In fact, this picture you see up there, there's the two old people that made it Sullivan Assisted Living, but there's even two old dogs in that picture. One was uh, 18, almost 18, when she died over there by the fireplace. She didn't die by the fireplace, but that's the one. And, uh, and then Woody, which uh, was their dog, is 15 years old, and we inherited Woody, so we have Woody now still living with us, so I guess we're still kind of a running an assisted living center. Uh, during those years, spending a lot of time with old people and old dogs, we heard a lot of old people humor. For example, you may know that some senior citizens have taken to texting. Dorothy, do you text? Oh, of course. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. (laughs) They've taken to it with great enthusiasm. Now, my in-laws weren't some of those. They never really got into the texting thing. But those seniors who have learned to text, they have their own vocabulary, like, You know, all the little abbreviations that all the young people have, right? Like BFF, right? You think that that means best friends forever, right? No. It means best friend fainted. That's what it means if you're (laughs) a senior. Then there's BYOT, which is bring your own teeth. (laughs) And then there's CBM, covered by Medicare. There's FWB, friends with beta blockers. L-M-D-O, laughing my dentures out. <laughs> and finally, most of you know this one, G-G-P-B-L. You think that means gotta go phone battery low, right? No, not to seniors. It means gotta go pacemaker battery low. <laughs> now, the S-A-L officially closed four weeks ago tonight when Barb's dad, heard Jordan, breathed his last and went to be with the Lord. We were with him, and we stayed with him after he died until the funeral home came to get the body. And, of course, there were tears. There was also simultaneous rejoicing, knowing that he was in the presence of the Lord. There was a guy in the memory care home named Joe. Some of you met Joe. I think Warren and Shirley probably met Joe. You were there a couple times. And Herb was there less than... uh, three weeks before he died. But we kind of got to know Joe. He would wander around the home. He was kind of, he had a walker he would shuffle like this and he would look at you and smile and you'd say hi. He would go.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: just kind of a delightful old guy. So he would usually chuckle when he saw you. Well, the night Herb died probably about 30 minutes later. So, so it was about 1.30 in the morning. Well, Joe was up and he was wandering the halls and uh, we were seated in the room. We had the door open because the staff was kind of coming and going and nurses were coming and going at that point. So Joe shuffles in (laughs) and he looks at Herb and he says, I guess he's not doing so good. It's okay to laugh because it was funny. (laughs) Then he proceeds to tell us what a good friend that Herb was and how they knew each other when they were in Alaska together. Now, none of that was true. They never knew each other. They were never in Alaska together. But to Joe, it was. So when he left, we just laughed. I mean, literally laughed. We were already crying, so we laughed until we cried because it was just funny. It was a very nice moment of comic relief. And then not 15 minutes later, here comes Joe again. He walks in. He looks at Herb and says, He doesn't look so good. (laughs) We waited until he left to laugh again. Sometimes you need a little comic relief, you know, in those moments, you need that. And Joe actually provided this. We think Joe, Joe is God's messenger in that moment for us. Sometimes dementia will bring that comic relief, although quite unintentionally. When Gigi's Alzheimer's took a significant downward slide in the last four months of her life, we had things happen that really in the moment were incredibly stressful and very difficult but later we found them quite funny when we thought about it. There was a time she was going on a rampage about finding her kids. Now this was something she did a lot. She had kind of regressed and thought that her kids were little and they were missing. And this happened several times in the last weeks that she lived with us. She she was convinced her boys were little. Now her son Russ turned 60 last week, so her boys haven't been little in half a century. But it upset her greatly because she thought that her kids were missing. And sometimes we told her the boys were upstairs asleep. And sometimes that worked to calm her down and then sometimes it didn't. And like I say, this happened a lot. But there was one time when she asked if anyone knew the neighbor's phone number so so we could call the neighbors and see if the boys were over there. So I had an idea. I told Gigi I'd try to get one one of the boys on the phone to talk to her and to let her know that they were okay. And I remembered that little 10-year-old girls sound a lot like little 10-year-old boys on the phone. So I decided to call Jason Feathers. And so I called Jason, and I asked him to put Grace Ann on the phone and pretend to be one of her boys. And I told Grace Ann, just kind of go with the flow, just you know answer her questions, pretend to be one of her boys. And uh, so I put her on the speakerphone so I could intervene, so I could hear what you know she was saying and as needed. And I told Grace Ann to say hi, and she did. And Gigi looked really confused. And she said, who's that? And I said, that's Peter, one of your boys. That's who you wanted to talk to, isn't it? And she said, but my boys are grown men. (laughs) So much for that ploy. (laughs) Another time, she'd settled down after a rampage about her missing boys, and I sat next to her, and she told me about the ghosts in the house. I said, really, you see ghosts? And she said, as calmly as... I'm talking to you right now. She said, yeah. Don't you? Well, concerned that this would lead to her being more upset because that was the hard thing, is trying to keep her calm because she would get upset about things that weren't real, but they were real to her. So I asked her, I said, does that bother you? She said, no, they're nice ghosts. Okay, I was a little bit relieved, and I said, really? She said, yes. And she said, and they wear little uniforms, And then she looked on the couch and she spoke to one of them. She said, how are you, little girl? That was a little spooky. And then she told me they had ghosts in all the houses that they lived in during their years in the Air Force. And then she said, and sometimes they bring things. And I said, really? Like what? And she said, toilet paper. (laughs) So you have nice ghosts wearing little uniforms bringing toilet paper. Like I say, you may as well laugh about it. It's comic relief in the midst of this because most of the time it wasn't very funny and it was pretty stressful and I could tell you many more stories that really have no humor at all in them, but here we are. We knew that when we brought Barb's parents to live with us, we were moving them to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma to die. We had no idea how long that they'd be with us, but we knew that the end of this chapter of our lives would coincide with the end of their lives. We certainly didn't know all that this season of life would bring, but we also weren't naive enough to think that it would be all that easy. We quickly discovered some things that God was doing in our own lives as we cared for Barb's folks. Barb and I had decided not too long after we were married 40 years ago, I don't know how many newlywed couples have this conversation, but let me tell you, it's probably a good one to have. What are you going to do if your parents have needs at the end of their lives? What are you going to do? We decided that we would be willing to do anything we needed to do up to and including having parents move in with us if that was what was needed, okay, and that was best for them. We didn't know what would transpire in the waning years of their lives. And I also want to be quick to point out that this doesn't mean that everybody has to do exactly what we did. In other words, having their aging parents move in with them. Circumstances are different for everybody. What's best for different people is different, okay? So you need to remember that. But there were some significant biblical reasons for doing what we chose to do. And at the very top of the list was this. We couldn't escape this idea. The Bible tells us, Matthew 15, chapter 4, and tells us in other places, God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Honoring your parents is a commandment that is never rescinded. As we become adults, we move out from under our parents' covering, We're no longer commanded to obey them as when we are with them as children. But honoring our parents is a lifelong commitment. Clearly that honor will look different for each one depending on their individual circumstances. But the honor command never changes. For Barb and me, what that meant was taking her parents into our home when they needed the help in what they call the activities of daily living. That's that's assisted living jargon, okay? In a very real sense, we were just being obedient. The other thing we were very mindful of, and honor your father and your mother is a positive command, do this. But there was kind of a negative way to look at it too. And Paul wrote this to Timothy, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If unbelievers can provide for their relatives, so could we. What a sobering thought that is. If we disobey the commandment to honor our parents, we've denied the faith. That's pretty strong. And we're worse than unbelievers, who at least have the excuse of being an unbeliever. Admittedly, there was also a little bit of enlightened self interest at work. Think about this what we see in Matthew. Okay, there was a screen went away again. What we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What would our children do with us if they saw us ignore the needs of our parents in this season of their lives? What if I need help someday? We thought about that too. Additionally, here's something you might not have thought of, but I did. Barb and I did. There's kind of a pro-life ethic at work. Now, we most often think of the phrase pro-life as having to do with opposing abortion, and certainly it does. But life at all stages with all people has value, if only because God created us. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if life has value solely because we are created in God's image, that value does not change when one's ability or inability to do anything transpires. The unborn have value because they are made in God's image. The mentally and physically challenged or disabled are God's creative work as well. And that value continues throughout life and into old age, regardless of mental ability or physical ability or physical incapacity. This, too, was a driving force in our decision to run the SAL for almost four years. In the midst of our caregiving, I came across another verse that reinforced this pro-life ethic specifically applied to old age, and that's Psalm chapter 71, verse 9, which says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Now, Barb's mom, Gigi, her strength was pretty much spent when they moved in with us, mentally for sure, and physically in most ways. Herb's strength was a little bit better, but he was waning as well. It was nearly spent. We couldn't, we could not, in good conscience before God, cast them off, as the psalmist said. So these were biblical reasons that were echoing in our minds and in our spirits as we began this very adventurous season of our lives. But more than that, and more than just the motivation and convictions that we had, God used this season of our lives to teach us. The primary, most significant lesson at work in me was death to self. Death to self, I believe, is the single most significant factor in caring for an elderly loved one with horrible diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, at least it was for me. The incredible needs, which grow more and more challenging for both the caregivers and the person with the disease, as the disease kind of marches towards its very inevitable conclusion, require a constant killing, an intentional and constant putting to death of that part of us all that is part of our sin nature, and that's selfishness. We are all selfish, folks. We are all selfish. We are all self-absorbed. It's a matter of degree. We're all selfish and self-absor- self-absorbed. It's, it's kind of hard to admit, but it's the truth. We know this instinctively, really. We don't have to teach a child selfishness. One of the first words a child learns is what? Mine! Right? And usually they shriek it rather than say, Mine. Right? We all come by this selfishness quite naturally. Early in my Christian life, I heard uh, a wonderful poem by C.S. Lewis, and it was put to music by one of my favorite Christian singers, Phil Keggy. We're going to hear the whole thing at the end as kind of a contemplative way for us to think about the things that we're looking at this morning. But let me read a few lines from this poem. It's called As the Ruin Falls by C.S. Lewis. All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. Wow. Is that indicting? Is that convicting? As I grew in Christ and I learned more about what his word has to say about the insidious and selfish human nature in all of us, I saw myself more and more in this poem. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. A lot of people might look at me, they might look at some of you, and say, nonsense, you don't appear to be selfish. You act unselfishly, you do unselfish things. And yes, of course, we can do unselfish things. We can do them. But I know, God knows, the deep selfishness that is still deeply rooted in my sinful heart. The sometimes resentment I felt, especially in this season of these last three or four years, when I had to die to self and do something, and I resented it. And the self that still infected even my good deeds. One of my favorite writers, the late Jerry Bridges, wrote this. He said, "...if God's blessings were dependent on our performance, they would be meager indeed. Even our best works are shot through with sin, with varying degrees of impure motives and lots of imperfect performance." We're always, to some degree, looking out for ourselves, guarding our flanks, protecting our egos. It's because we don't realize the utter depravity of the principle of sin remaining in us and staining everything we do that we entertain any notion of earning God's blessings through our obedience. And because we don't fully grasp that Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins, we despair of God's blessing when we fail to live up to even our own desires. Please God. It's why I need Jesus, folks. It's why I need Jesus. It's why I must rely only and exclusively on His grace to save me from my sin and from myself. The Apostle Paul got this too. This is a very biblical idea, folks. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So this has to do with the already and the not yet. Caleb, can you advance it? A, a, uh, one here, my my clicker's not working. Steve, I guess we figured out that there is some kind of a problem with this, and it's not just the battery. This has to do with the already and the not yet. The reality that I'm justified in Christ before God, but not fully changed into his image this side of eternity. The fact that I'm still a sinner, but I'm a sinner who's being changed and conformed in the image and likeness of Christ over the course of my Christian life. So for our purposes this morning in lessons from the SAL, suffice it to say that in this earthly life, we who are in Christ are to put to death our old sin nature. This is part of the process that the Holy Spirit is working throughout the life of a believer. Now in one sense, it's a done deal, because it is happening, and it will happen. And in another sense, it's ongoing, as long as I draw a breath. And one way that God does that is to root out the selfishness in my life. I like that phrase, rooting out. It implies more than just cutting off the visible part of something like a weed. That's what we think of rooting out weeds when we're weeding our garden or our lawn. You can't just cut off the top of the weed and expect it to be gone. It'll come back. You have to dig deep and get all the root of that weed out of the ground. If you don't, The weed will continue to haunt your green grassy lawn or your flower bed or whatever the case may be. That's something that God does in us. That's something he does in us. And he uses the circumstances of our lives to do this. He even uses our obedience to him to accomplish this purpose in our lives. Our obedience doesn't earn us any favor, but it is a response to his grace. And as such... Our obedience often costs us, but it also shapes us. It can be a painful process. And as C.S. Lewis wrote at the end of this poem, again we'll hear the whole thing at the end of uh, the message today, he wrote, The pains you give me are more precious than all other gains. So we see this killing of our old self quite often in Scripture. Caleb, can you click the next one? Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then the next scripture is Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So as four years ago, we undertook this adventure of caring for my wife's folks, my old man, my old sinful self, the selfish nature in me began taking a lot of hits. Early in this process, I realized I was in school again, I was being schooled, I was being taught by the Master, and endeavored to learn as much as I could and grow in death to self. Certainly God can and will use other things too. If this death to self could only be accomplished by caring for elderly or infirm people, uh, then growth would be off limits to the rest of us that don't have to do that. There's actually a great book on marriage called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas, and we studied that actually here, in a Sunday night seminar a few years back. The subtitle is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? That's a very interesting thought to me, and it applies beyond marriage. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And one time, I appreciated that idea. I had finished this book, Sacred Marriage, and I appreciated the idea that God uses life life circumstances to make us holy. So much that I took the same essential theme that God uses marriage to take, shape us into his image and I applied it once in a sermon that I preached on parenthood because after all, can't parenthood do the same thing? It can be challenging too, just like marriage. And God can, and he usually does, use the selflessness that is so often required of parents to shape us and to make us holy too. And then... I thought I had this great original idea I discovered later, like a week after I preached the sermon in this church, that Gary Thomas had already made that connection in a book-length form, no less, with his book called Sacred Parenting. And so, so much for my original idea, there's nothing new under the sun. So though the title of this morning's message is Lessons from the SAL, it could be called Sacred Parental Caregiving. All this is part of the process of sanctification, it's God using the circumstances of our lives to make us more like Jesus. It's part of what John Faler preached about in the strong message he brought a few weeks ago. It's about sanctification, folks. We could not have known, my wife and I, in March 2015, when we made this decision about moving toward her parents living with us, we couldn't have known how the next few years would unfold. We planned... Okay, we planned as well as we could. We made the house that we bought uh, to accommodate their needs. We made it accessible. We made it comfortable. We researched doctors. We worked to transfer their financial and medical affairs here from uh, Arkansas to Oklahoma. And then we moved our own household belongings and ourselves into this new house. And finally, we moved them from Rogers, Arkansas, to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. We certainly hoped to keep them safe and comfortable, and to provide them a rich life in their remaining years, full of family and friendships and church. And many of you were part of the richness of life that they experienced in those last few years. Many of the things that we experienced, we really did anticipate. We kind of knew they were coming, though the practical outworking of some of those things often differed from what we might have anticipated. Many other things we could not have possibly foreseen. I said to many people during our three and a half years of caregiving that you need to have a strong marriage if you do this. And I was always careful to point out that honoring your parents will look different for each of us, and it doesn't necessarily mean we must have them live with us, although it might. But it was stressful, folks. It was stressful in ways I can only begin to describe. It allows little or no time for nurturing in a marriage, the kind of nurturing that even long-term successful marriages really need. We celebrated our 40th anniversary last August, and that was less than six months before the end of this season of caregiving. So we had a firm foundation in Christ, and thanks be to God I really believe these difficulties really only strengthened our marriage in the end. But it would be tough if you had kind of a shaky marriage. I think that a couple with a shaky marriage that's not firmly rooted and grounded in Christ might struggle through or not even really survive such a season. When we started this adventure, we were driven by the biblical motivations that I've already rehearsed and these convictions that were enabled by God's sustaining grace. And they are the things that carried us through. Andrew Peterson wrote a song about his marriage. It was called Dancing in the Minefields. Have you heard that? Some of you have heard that song. Great song. Proving again that marriage can be God's school in ways similar to caregiving for the elderly, the chorus says this, We went dancing in the minefields, we went sailing in the storms, and it was harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. It was harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. That was very true of our season of caregiving. Promises like wedding vows are based on firm convictions. Our decision to have Barb's parents live with us at the end of their lives was also based on firm convictions. Those firm convictions, in turn, must be, I believe, must be based on biblical principles. Those convictions that are lived out based on firmly held beliefs about what the Word of God says is true and right are part of how God's grace carries us through these seasons. For us, first were the biblical principles that I mentioned earlier, that we tried to walk out in our daily lives as the rubber of life's circumstances hit the road of our new reality. Then beyond the convictions, there were those things that work in me. And without speaking for Barb, I would say she would probably tell you the same thing. They were probably true of her. I knew from Scripture that God would work these things in me because they're really part and parcel of the way he works in all of our lives. Only the context of how he works these things out in our lives may be different. A solid theology of suffering also can't help but play into this in a very significant way. What do you think about suffering and why do we suffer? Is the physical or emotionally suffering that we have in this life one of the things God uses to shape us into the image and likeness of Christ? I believe it is, folks. I believe it is, and I learned that here. I've heard it preached here, not by me, by others. So one of my modern-day heroes of the faith writes clearly in her books and articles addressing the painful reality of much of what we experience. Johnny Erickson Tata, She's a hero to me. She's suffered much in her lifetime, and that suffering has brought about a very clear-headed, personally experienced, and very sound, I believe, theology of suffering. And it has resulted in a ministry to those who suffer, and particularly to those who suffer with some sort of disability. Her many books and articles address suffering in a lot of contexts, and they've illustrated how God redeems suffering in the lives of those who are in Christ. And she wrote this in her book, When God Weeps, that God cares most, not about making us comfortable, but about teaching us to hate our sins, to grow up spiritually, and to love him. To do this, he gives us salvation's benefits only gradually, sometimes painfully gradually. In other words, he lets us continue to feel much of sin's sting while we're headed for heaven, where at last every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened. I will say that despite how difficult this season was, it was the best possible thing that could have happened. Kevin Van Hooser wrote in Christianity Today, marriage may be a school of sanctification, as Luther said, but caring for aging parents is its grad school, especially when he or she lives with you and suffers from dementia. I read that and I said, boy, amen to that. I found this to be very true. I learned it firsthand as we were caring for Barb's parents. God will never leave us as we were when we were justified. That's a promise of Scripture, folks. He's not going to leave us the way we were when we got saved. Once we come to Christ for salvation, God will work in our lives to change us little by little, day by day, even moment by moment, more and more into the image of and likeness of Christ. And that especially, I believe, includes death to self. If pride was the original sin, I want to be like God, right? That was the original sin. Then selfishness is pride's ugly stepchild. It infects each one of us throughout our lives. Few things I've experienced in my 45 plus years in Christ exposed my deep selfishness like caring for aging parents with dementia. After we were there for Barb's dad's last moments on this earth before he entered eternity four weeks ago tonight, Barb and I kind of agreed that we felt like we just finished a marathon. And it was a marathon that included a two-month sprint at the very end of it. And think about this, when you complete a major life event, it can be like a marathon or it can be maybe you finish a college degree that you worked hard For a long time, just completing it brings a real sense of accomplishment, doesn't it? Just finishing it. Regardless of how well you did, you may not have won the marathon, but you finished. Well, this did feel like that. There was grief. It's grief with hope. But there was grief. There was, in many ways, and still is, weariness. But there's also a sense that we have accomplished what we set out to do. We knew that when we brought our parents to live with us, And all that that entailed, we were bringing them to eventually die with us. Little did we know that they would not be the only ones to die. The Lord brought about a fair amount of dying in our lives as well. Killing our old man. Death to self. Death to self-sufficiency. That was the last message you heard from me in this pulpit. It's a work that he has deepened in us. But we also realize... We're not finished. There's a lot more to come as God molds and shapes us into the image and likeness of his son until that day when he makes us perfect in him and we too are absent from the body and present with the Lord. So I want to think about this. I want all of us to think about these things as we listen to this song here. How would the Lord have you respond individually to this word as we hear this C.S. Lewis poem put to music?
1: Flashy rhetoric about loving you I've never had a selfless thought Since I was born Prisoned always in